0: um real quick smell not much <laughs> i it's a sense i got to cover it welcome to pragmatic Pragmatic is a discussion show contemplating the practical application of technology. By exploring the real-world trade-offs, we look at how great ideas are transformed into products and services that can change our lives. Nothing is as simple as it seems. This episode is brought to you by Backblaze, gimmick-free, truly unlimited cloud backup for your Mac or PC for just $6 a month. Visit this URL, backblaze, all slash pragmatic for more information. We'll talk more about them during the show. Pragmatic is part of the Engineered Network, to support our shows including this one, head over to our Patreon page, and for other great shows, visit engineered.network today. I'm your host, John Chidgy, and today I'm joined by Jason Snell. How's it going, Jason? It's doing, uh, I'm going great. How are you? Very good, very good. Uh, thank you for, for coming on the show. I uh, It's been a while since we spoke, and uh, I yeah. really wanted to tap into your um, experience. You've reviewed so many different products over the years, and... I wanted to have a conversation about optimal interfaces which I know is broad but Ooh, all right I, I know so we're going to try and we're going to try and keep <laughs> this tight so yeah I'm 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 going to limit my uh my depth to um I'm not going to go down to a transistor level or anything crazy so we're just going to stay relatively high level and uh I figure we kind of broadly group this and just go by by inputs and then outputs and then talk about some devices towards the end and what I'm trying to get out of this is um is understanding what the optimal interface is for what you're trying to achieve. And because it, it's something that um, there's all these different product categories out there now. It's like, what's the best thing for what application? And it's just something that I've been, I've wanted to do a show about this for a while. So what do you think?
1: I I think it sounds great. I think that there's a lot to discuss about how we use technology mm-hmm. and what is good about that and what is disastrous about that. Oh,
0: yeah, the, I, yes, exactly. So without further ado, let's start with inputs. and. Um, I, I tried to break this down because, in, okay, we're, being human, we've got five senses. So, having five senses, um, obviously, um, there's a certain number of inputs that are, uh, um, that you've got. So, let's start with audible ones. Like, uh, we'll start with sound, uh, being the obvious one. And I thought about it. What was the first sound input device that there was? This is input. This is not two a speakers. And I thought about it in the 80s. Did you ever come across that device called the clapper at all? Ha
1: <laughs> ha. Yeah, I actually just did a not-yet-released episode of the podcast I do with um, John Syracuse called Robot or Not, mm. and we did an episode about smart devices, and one of the questions was, was the clapper a smart device? Mm. Because you could clap two two claps in a particular pace, and if it heard two claps in a particular place, it would basically toggle power to a switch. And so you could turn on your lights by clapping with the clapper, but I was going to say I had a mac recorder mm. in college, which was a peripheral for my mac that was a um uh basically a microphone it also had a line input, and that was at, in an era where you couldn't audio input wasn't built into macs originally um you could get audio into a mac you could record your own voice you could do editing you could get in music and and i spent so much time with that making you know system beeps but also i did a a college project we were supposed to do like an audio project of some kind and i did it all digitally when everybody else was sort of using tapes Mm. um and that was my anyway so the mac recorder that was my that was my big first audio input device on a on a tech product i think
0: yeah, I um, and just, just circling back, robot or not, that's an awesome podcast. If you're not listening to it, you should. Um, and so far as the clapper goes, yeah, that's it's a bit borderline in terms of that definition, in my opinion. But 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 <laughs> but, but sure. Um, look, the, the the clapper. I was just trying to think back to anything before the clapper where you could use sound to actually do something, and that was as far back as I could find. And I never owned one, but I remember watching the ads and thinking, oh, that looks really cool. But um, yeah, they never actually released them at that point when I had um. I was too young. You know, I was, I forget, actually, it was because that was like early 80s anyway. And uh,
1: yeah, and we had a, um, I bought at one point a tag for your keychain mm-hmm. that was supposed to do the same thing that you were supposed to be able to make a particular clapping noise and it would chirp. the idea there was you could find your keys of course and it did not it did not work it just didn't work
0: (laughs) those yeah that's right the key whistles that's right because you could whistle and the thing would 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 beep beep at you yeah hmm that's one i hadn't thought of yeah interesting didn't work (gasps) okay so i mean in terms of that being particularly useful as an input device to a computer that's particularly not that not necessarily that great but obviously the dictation is really where it sort of started and i i played with um uh, early on with dragon dictate in the uh, i think it was the early 90s and uh, and dragon's still around today but one of the things i found with dictation is a lot of those early products was very um very algorithmic uh centric and you had to train it about the way you speak
1: yeah yeah i remember um so when i worked at MacWorld, one of my feature writers back in that period and he was also our columnist on the back page was david Pogue, and david had horrible RSI issues, and so he did all of his writing using uh, Dragon dictation. And actually, one of my coworkers ended up having pretty terrible RSI as well, and so she ended up with a a computer that had Dragon on it that she did all of her um, writing and editing on using voice control. And that was really my first uh, good view of that. There had been like the Mac had some voice control stuff built into it, but it was all fairly rudimentary and more kind of a um, you know, uh, something you could, you could look at and say, oh, well, that's kind of a clever trick, but it wasn't something that was entirely practical, but the Dragon stuff, I, you know, it definitely, um, ended up meeting a couple of people who could not have done their jobs without it.
0: Yeah. I actually recall, um, speaking with John Syracuse in the past when we did our RSI episode, uh, episode 50 was, he was using Dragon for a lot of, um, a lot of the articles he wrote for the OS X. Right. Reviews. That's
1: true. So yeah. that's, That's three people Mm. then. I'll add him to my list of people I I know who who basically they needed to use dictation because they just couldn't do all that typing. Dave Pogue, you know, is an incredibly prolific writer and has always been Mm. as long as I've known Mm -hmm. him. And he was doing it with dictation, which requires, I will say, a real shift in how you think. Because I've tried to write things using dictation and it is very hard because you have to completely change sort of like how you form the, the words. Um, it's a fascinating mental exercise to go from, uh, writing with a keyboard to, to dictation. But David, you know, has written dozens of books using dictation. So, you know, it can be done.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the technology, um, early on was, was heavily reliant on you training it and like reading passages multiple times and would say, yes, okay, that's, you will know, we'll read it again, read it again, read it again. And, um, and that was great, I think, up to a point, but it's sort of, I think it really plateaued. There was sort of a limit. And because you had to put all that time and effort into training it, a lot of people just wouldn't bother. If it was something that you did like David Pogue or like John Syracuse, or you're, you're actually really um, trying to get the maximum benefit out of it, you'll put that time investment in. But for the average person, it was sort of the bar was too high, I think. And it, I don't think it ever really took off in, in, uh, in any large way. It wasn't cheap either, but um, that probably didn't help. But I think more recently, machine learning and uh, some of the uh, that has really been taken that to the next level. So there's been a massive shift in the last, I'd say, maybe five years or so, um, with a lot of these uh, heavily of reliance on the machine learning component. A lot of it based in the cloud, and not all, obviously. So I mean, examples of that, of course, the Apple you know versions, I uh, <clears throat> Siri, because I didn't say the the hay in front, so I can say it back to front, so that's okay. <laughs> uh anyway uh then of course you've got Cortana by Microsoft Alexa um which is Amazon's thing and then the Google Assistant and those those ones I think have really uh improved it significantly because you don't have to train it about um to improve its recognition accuracy
1: right that people don't remember that to do voice recognition with something like Dragon it wanted you to read a bunch of samples out loud and actually you know Siri asks you to do it now when you set up an iPhone, but I believe what it's doing is it's actually trying to do some differentiation so that it can filter out other people's voices and make false positives be reduced and sort of like basically only trigger on your voice, but it doesn't need to uh, do what Dragon did, which was have you read paragraphs of text in order for it to sort of like begin to understand the way that you talked. And that was a pretty big breakthrough, I would say. And, and, and this is the, this is the moment where it became something a little bit more than just a curiosity um, and, and, and something a little bit more interesting.
0: Absolutely. I mean, the challenges with voice recognition, just, um, Uh, just to sort of try and round that out and we're going to move on a little bit. But the problem is that you've got different accents. You've also got people that will Mm -hmm. slur their speech uh, and you have got local dialects to deal with. Um, And uh, I think one of the biggest challenges for speech in terms of an input method is that there's always going to be a challenge. It's going to be noisy environments. And, it's not just the fact that there's noise interfering with the signal that you're trying to get into the machine, that you're trying to actually do the recognition on. It's also the fact that in by, by speaking to the machine, you're creating noise yourself, and that's going to disturb people around you. So there's sort of a... Right. Yeah, beyond the, yeah and beyond the technical uh, challenges of being able to do it accurately, uh, that will always be an issue. Um, and I think that fundamentally as well in terms of machines being able to do something with that information, it, it can translate the words for dictation. But then when you want to take the next step and start using that for command input, tracking the context of the conversation is extremely difficult. And uh, it's because, um, I mean, we we as humans, we have, we have a conversation. We remember what we were talking about five minutes ago. Um, well, most of us, I'm, I'm sure. But, you know, it's like that context can make a massive difference uh, rather than me having to backtrack and say the whole thing about... um. Uh, let's see, so it's now five o'clock in the afternoon. It's rather warm outside. Um, Are you going to put a jumper on? I can just skip to being a human. Like, we know all that context. I say, you're going to put a jumper on. And it's like, you know, intuitively, all the rest of it. Whereas a computer will struggle.
1: Yeah, it is. um, I think the possibilities, and we've seen it in the tech world in the last 10 years, the possibilities of voice interfaces are massive. But it is complicated. It is hard. They did... Maybe jump into this before the technology was good enough, and now we're in this point. I mean, this happens, right? Computer technology PCs had happened when they weren't good enough, but they happened anyway, and then we just kind of had to deal with that until they got better. And this is where we are with this. I, I have um, you know, my two thoughts about this that we haven't covered yet. One is um, I'm reminded of um Apple script in the sense that I feel like um, <laughs> just bear with me. Uh, There is an uncanny valley with voice commands, which is uh, for people who don't know Apple scripting language, Apple script is supposedly written in English. So it's a scripting language that just uses English words and it's supposed to be an English grammar and it's supposed to be readable. You could actually read it out loud and it wouldn't sound like code. It would sound like sentences. That's the idea. But the truth is that, The word order matters. And what's worse, sometimes in order to get the command you want, you have to phrase things in a way that uses English words and phrases in ways that don't sound like anything an English speaker would say. So it becomes counterintuitive because it's so familiar on one level using those tools unfamiliarly is frustrating. And I feel very similarly about a lot of voice command stuff. Is It's exciting, but I do think you have to get over, and really it needs to be the technology does a better job of parsing. You have to get across that uncanny valley where um, I realize I can't speak to this thing like it's a person. I can't. I need to instead formulate almost like a command line interface command using words as if I'm speaking to somebody, but I'm totally not because this is not something I would ever say to another human being, but I have to talk this weird way to talk to this computer. And I think that is the the greatest challenge of, of voice interfaces is can you push it beyond that so that people can have a conversation with the computer and it can You know, and I think a lot of that is back and forth. It's not just kind of like what's the context, but it's also like how do you pick out the context if you don't get enough information? So it's, you know, I would like to be asked a follow-up question if it doesn't know what I'm trying to say. But right now that doesn't happen. So I think that's a big barrier. But I think the upside is enormous because um, when you think about how to how to control a computer, we have not just like the mouse and, and uh, you know, the cursor on the screen, but we have keyboards and keyboard shortcuts and menus and lots of things that help drive forward, uh, drive software forward with features that are uh, maybe not obvious, but they're available. And, you know, on a touchscreen device, on a small device, especially like a smartphone, I think that um, the the makers of these products are right in sort of thinking there are lots of contexts on those devices and also like devices without any visual interface at all, like a cylinder that lives in your home, that voice is the shortcut. That instead of a keyboard shortcut, your voice is a shortcut that you say, do this thing. Mm -hmm. And and it's uh, an interface mode that... um, is a uh, better suited in some ways and socially not in others when you're just shouting things out loud while you're walking down the street. Yeah. Uh but anyway, I think I think there's a huge upside there but there there is a a leap that we need to make for it to be something that um that is not in that uncanny valley of, I, I'm talking like I'm talking to a human being, but I'm unable to say anything the way I would to a human being, which is where we are now, I feel like.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's key, is that we, when we learn how to speak and we have conversations with people, it it, it doesn't prepare us for having to speak in a, a, as you say, a prescribed order in order for the machine to understand what you're talking about. And and so long as that's the case, there's an additional level of training that we need to have as, as, a, as a human trying to interact with a computer until... Until those algorithms improve and it can track context, nothing that occurred to me um, when you were talking, Jason, is that in a in a, in a room, if we say, um, you know, oh, you know, is it is it? It's pretty bright. We might point at um, the curtains, and the suggestion would be, it's very bright. Well, you know, could we close the curtains? For example, it's the sort of thing that I feel like because we also rely on other factors in the room visually as well. Um, that just a simple. In order to be natural, more natural, it ha- it'll have to inevitably uh, take in uh, gesture tracking and movement tracking and everything, which we'll get to in a minute. But um, it, it's—I um, think the biggest—the biggest leap for us in the near future, at least, is not the context problem because I think the context problem is extremely complicated. As you say, it's more just the dictation, and for that, it just needs to be accurate. And at the moment, accuracy is still really not quite good enough. I don't—I think this has been my experience, and I think that when we were when i was learning typing at school they set a, a target for a certain words per minute at 95 percent accuracy and i think 95 is kind of a a reasonable sort of a number to pick if, if i can dictate to a machine and gets it right 95 percent of the time then and it can keep up with my spoken word without me having to slow down and that's like an average of between 150 words per minute to 190 words per minute i'm, I'm sure there's fast talkers that can talk faster than that but i'm not sure that's pleasant to listen to but you know um like the guys that call out the the race call at the uh, the racetrack or something like that or i don't know people auctioning stuff sounds a bit mm. exactly <laughs> but not them not them normal people hmm. anyway point is that um if it can keep up with an average spoken word without having to slow down uh at that point that's the inflection point and suddenly then speech becomes faster than than a keyboard might be for example and I guess ultimately we're not there yet and it could be 5 to 10 years away but I see the improvement is uh, is staggering in this just in the last decade it's been really impressive. Yeah, I agree. Alrighty, let's move on with touch. And you touched on this briefly. Oh, I actually wasn't trying to be funny then, but anyhow. Um you did touch on that briefly. Oh, I did it again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Hey, um so direct inputs. I thought it might be um interesting just to separate them in, from direct and indirect. So just direct inputs I thought about, well, we've got directly inputting onto a touchscreen and I thought, what's the first example of that? And if you go way, way back, do you ever, did you ever play with a light pen at all? No, no. Oh, I'd like to say you missed out, but you really didn't miss out. It was, <laughs> so um, the light pen was just like a large, a large pen with a little LED on the end and a touch sensor on the end. Once I had a touch sensor, it was just like a little round um, plastic ring that you pushed down against the screen and that would close a set of contacts. And that was then cabled back through a, a cable back into the computer and it as you tapped it on the screen, you would get a, a bright cursor and the bright cursor would scan across the screen top to bottom uh, from left to right, top to bottom, and it would time delay how long it would take to get from the the cursor point to being detected by the light pen and that would tell you where the pen was on the screen. It was tragically, tragically slow, inaccurate <laughs> tech and like. I mean, anyway. So I just mentioned it because that was eighties tech, and it was um, it was cool at the time. Not surprised it didn't take off. Anyway, um, got to touch on. Res- I gotta stop doing that. Resistive touch. Yeah, I know. Um, and you need a stylus really with resistive touch to be accurate. Although right. I used to use the edge of my fingernail. It kind of worked, but it still wasn't all
1: that accurate. It's not, it's not great, but you can do it. This is the, you know, anybody who had a palm pilot yeah. right, knows about resistive touch mm. interfaces. Yeah,
0: exactly. And the other problem with, with resistive that I found was that um, you, you couldn't do more than one touch at a time. So there was no real way of doing gestures either because if you had to draw a line with your finger, you had to keep your finger pressing down whilst you dragged it. And it was, I don't know, just awkward. It didn't really work
1: that well. Yeah, it's not great. Not great. It was. It was as if we were waiting for a better technology to come along.
0: Yeah, exactly. And capacitive. When when uh, I think capacitive was around for a few years, but when the iPhone came out, they really, absolutely nailed it. And it was a, I think it was a combination of the fact that they took into account like the viewing angle, so where you touched and where you thought you were touching physically, they corrected for that kind of error, um, and just the accuracy of it. And then adding this, the simple gestures like pinch was just transformative.
1: Yep, yeah, the um for me the most important thing about touch interfaces is the removal of that layer of abstraction. For me, that's the thing that um when you're using a computer with a pointing device, you're moving your hand on a uh, perpendicular surface to the screen and a an avatar of your finger or hand mm a little floating cursor is moving around on the screen. And then when you get somewhere, you know, you press down here and something happens up there. And that moment when you first use a, uh, a touchscreen device, um, especially not one that is resistive where you're, you know, kind of shoving your finger in there or using a stylus, but you're just touching with your finger naturally finger right on the glass that, that is That moment of the direct interface, which is, oh, that abstraction layer that I never even thought about is suddenly gone, where I'm touching the software. I'm making – like the first time I used a calculator app, my friend James Thompson's PCALC Mm -hmm. app on on an iPhone – it was so strange because it was like oh now this is a calculator like it felt it went from being a piece of software to being a physical object the phone wasn't a phone anymore it was a calculator that i was holding and touching the buttons on and that is for people who don't remember that moment mm-hmm. of transition i think that was a remarkable moment of transition because um it i it's just it's much more intuitive In so many different ways to see something and touch it than it is to see something on a screen and then move somewhere else and move a thing around like that, that remote control kind of thing that we've grown up with on personal computers that simply has been that whole layer just got ripped out when touchscreens happened.
0: Absolutely right, and I think that ultimately uh, that sort of uh, interaction model is—it's very natural because as as we evolve and, and grow up as uh, as individuals, you know, we learn that you know we we push the ball over there and then the ball rolls over there. We crawl over to the ball, we grab the ball, and you know whatever we do with it. But it's a direct interactive model, which is you know is exactly not how you explain it to a child. Yes, you're you're interfacing with your ball through the direct interaction model, and they'll just look at you and say something like "gaga." But anyway, the point is. That's how it works for us every day, so having that um built into a digital device makes it instantly usable and there's no training really required it's just so accessible and straightforward and I think that that that's that's amazing and 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 that will always be um the easiest to use for anybody um without any training and that that puts it in a special place but the funny thing is that I actually still think indirect inputs have a massive role to play so Talking about indirect, and, and you sort of mentioned these previously, Well, we've got keyboards. Obviously, the original keyboards just mimic typewriter keyboards, and they've essentially been unchanged since the first terminal computers through personal computers, you know, apart from some keyboards with dodgy key switch mechanisms, not mentioning any, but never mind. Um, you know, Apart from that, keyboards have been much the same kind of idea for a very long time, um but beyond that we also have the cursor that you also mentioned about uh we've got the mo- a mouse computer mouse we've got trackpads track balls. i had a a Toshiba 200 CDS crummy windows laptop back in 1997 or 80 or i something like that anyway and it had a thing they called the point. um <laughs> yeah those little pushy stick things you put your finger on uh huh oh, man that was bizarre so but, but the funny thing is that all of those things, what they do have in common is that they allow for extremely precise cursor positioning. And I think that that's the sort of thing that you can't as easily get um, with with a touch interface unless you're using something like a stylus. But I'd argue that even a stylus is not quite as accurate as you can accurately position um, a, a mouse pointer, with a cursor with, with an indirect input method.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: So ultimately, um, I feel like, uh, that technology is all very advanced. It is what it is. And people sort of like say, well, it's never going to go away, but there are going to be applications where it's always going to be the best input method. So things like for bulk text input, physical keyboards, ultimately they're, the, they're still the fastest way. But the, the reason that the problem is that in order to be the fastest method of data input, you have to train yourself. You have to, you have to go through typing training and learn how to, to, to touch type. And, uh, Uh, I think just just, uh, for those that are curious, the fastest recorded typing speed was actually set in 1946, um, which is a while ago. um, And it was an IBM electric typewriter. And uh, that was 216 words a minute in, in terms of in the modern age, the fastest uh, English typing speed on it was on Dvorak simplified keyboard was 212 words per minute. That was in 2005. The average typing speed is about 41 words a minute. So I guess the problem with what I was where we were just circling back briefly to the whole speech recognition is that it's got a ways to go because we speak at 150 to 190 words a minute, whereas typing, you know, the average person, you need training, um, but you'll never keep up with that. So, once speech recognition reaches that level of 95% accuracy, at that point, I can see keyboards becoming uh, less relevant.
1: Yeah, it's – I I am – So as somebody who types really fast and grew up uh, learning, you know, self-teaching how to type by entering in computer programs on an L2 keyboard, like I, and I, and to this day, I type uh, in an unorthodox fashion, but very fast. I am not entirely convinced that the platonic ideal of keyboards or or of text input is keyboards, is like physical keyboards. I'm not entirely convinced. I kind of like, I can see it, but I kind of, I'm so close to it that I want to, rem- I want to be open to other possibilities, including, um, yes, including voice input or a sub vocalization through some sort of future technology that allows you to kind of like read your, your brain and do text. I mean, there, there may be others, but, but for now, it seems like it's the best one. I do think that we're going to see technologies, uh, around things like autocorrect around, um, uh, vision and you know cameras and um and other things that are embedded in our devices i wrote a column about this at macworld a few years ago um because apple seems to be on a quest to reduce the keyboards away to nothing in some ways and i think that has bitten them in their latest keyboard design but i could see a scenario just even as a devil's advocate i could see a scenario where if you put your hands down on a surface uh or even just float them float them in air and start typing with your fingers um, on glass in air. And the there's an input method with glass. There's a touchscreen. Maybe there's haptics to give you some feedback. And then let's throw in um, that the software knows where your fingers are on the, on the keys, but it also can see with a camera. It can see where your hands are. like. And you throw in some machine learning for like what you write and the the cadence of which you type and what words you type in the in that cadence. Like, I, I think it's possible that typing can become something that can happen on any surface and at a very high rate of speed. Um, I I think it's possible that something like that could happen a virtual keyboard. But there is you know, you know what it would really require is some dictation software that would blow it out of the water by really being amazing at interpreting what you're saying and automatically editing on the fly. Um, I think, I think the truth is that that's what it's going to take, that, that moving your fingers at a certain precision level is just going to be what it is. And nobody, the average person is not going to be able to do that more than, uh, you know, 60 words a minute or 70 words a minute, really. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It, it's, it's one of those things where I'm a big fan of keyboards, and yet at the same time, I, I want to be open to the possibility that the keyboard is a phenomenon of our, our uh, you know, last, whatever, 200 years, 100 years, and not um, something that is the platonic ideal of text input for you know, the rest of, of time.
0: Oh, for sure. And I recall there was a product, um, I'm sorry it was a few years ago, four or five years ago, and it was a la- it was a laser projector. The
1: laser. Yeah, and it
0: projected yeah. the keys on the on a desk. Did you ever play with one of those or
1: I think I saw one in action but never actually used it for more than a few seconds. But yeah, it projected on a desk and it looked at where your fingers were. Mm. And and then that was the input for it. And I, I, I Had that thought about um, what if you made a laptop with a glass keyboard that was a multi-touch surface, but there were haptics to make it feel like your fingers really were uh, hitting the keys and getting feedback back at you. And also, what if um, the laptop screen had a camera in it that was looking at your hands so that even if you were off, like to the left or to the right or up or down a little bit from where the visible keyboard was, that it didn't matter because it knew what your hands were trying to do. Mm And could even move the keys underneath y- your fingers to where they know you think they are, which is kind of a weird idea. But it's that's not outside the realm of possibility. So there's a lot of strange things that could could yet happen to keyboards. But I think the big issue is, are you would need to train a whole new generation into basically writing with dictation instead of writing. Put it, you know, put it all in your verbal cue instead of in this kind of whatever the writing cue is. It's a different. Process in the brain, and you know part of me wants to just say, if we trained everybody to write with dictation, writers would use dictation, and it would be fine mm-hmm. but i 'm not sure that's i'm not sure they 're parallel i 'm not sure they use the same parts of the brain, and I say that as somebody who when i got um when I was in graduate school, I got uh, really sick for about a month, and I was at home, I had to leave school and go home and um It was right as I had bought my first laptop, but the laptop hadn't been delivered when I had to go home. So Mm -hmm. I didn't have the laptop. It was sitting, you know, two hours away. Um, And so I was writing uh, longhand, and it was the most longhand writing I'd ever done um, since I was, you know, basically ever. Mm. Certainly since I was a kid in school. And what I found about that experience was that my longhand writing was a completely different process than my typing. Because my longhand writing was slower, and so my brain... Like the way I composed the sentences was completely different than when I was using uh, type. So I have to I have to keep open to the fact that that, that tactile um, writing approach may be good, but it may be supplanted, and that might be fine.
0: So I'm glad you brought some of those points up because i want to, I want to circle back to those in a couple of minutes when we start talking about neural stuff. Because um yeah, because why not um. And just to close out on the keyboard piece, I think that the the, the single biggest problem with uh, saying keyboards are you know I think keyboards will always exist. I think we'll always have some kind of mechanism, whether it's a physical keyboard or projected onto a surface, like you're suggesting. But I think that that as a data entry input works uh, on from from the the pri- not privacy. It, it's the um, without projecting your voice out to an entire room, there'll always be situations where you're in an office and speech recognition is going to make it. If everyone did all of their work entirely through speech, I think that it would be even more noisy in an office environment than it already is. And I find that I think that that's, that's going to be a problem. So ultimately I think there'll always be a place for it and there'll be people that will prefer that. But, but in the end it's going to take speech recognition to really go to that next level in order for, for that to happen. So Yep. having talked a little bit about the movement and the tracking of the fingers that's actually the next one I want to talk about which was movement so as an input you know tracking a person's movement whether it's their fingers or their arms or limbs or their face or eyes um, that can be used as a method of input and uh, one of the things that I have played a lot with and I mean played a lot with because it's uh it's on the Xbox so the Xbox uh, connect have you um have you played with those
1: yes I have
0: uh, so what was your experience like with that
1: I, it was okay i i played with the um the 360 xbox connect more than with i think we haven't had an xbox one connect but didn't use it so much it was kind of on the downside at that point mm. but you know it was there were moments where it seemed magical and there were moments where it seemed uh like a disaster <laughs> and i i think the part that really got me was that they said basically for this to really work you need to move your furniture out of your yeah out of in front of your TV. They like, like literally they're like we need a space this size and I thought, well that's basically the size of my living room. So that's going to be difficult to do without and when we would use the connect, we literally would slide the coffee table all the way over to the doors on the side of the room and push one of the couches back so that there the basically our rug in our living room was a connect space because that was the only way we could do it. But that said, there was something kind of exhilarating about using your body positioning to control uh, a device interface. Mm. Oh, absolutely.
0: Uh, we had I, I had a similar experience. So we we've got the Xbox One with the Kinect Two, uh, which you know was discontinued in 2017, but still. Um, and it was it was generally okay, but I found it was thrown off when people walked past, either in front or behind, when you were trying to do stuff, and it would then lock onto the wrong person, and do, and and then of course you know my kids being well, my kids would would come in and intentionally uh do stuff while people are trying to do um, just dance or something like that and and throwing it off and it um mm. so you needed a larger space with not too many things uh cluttering it up like you said couches and so on uh plus you it gets confused in if it's an average uh house and you've got people walking in and out then and you're trying to do something they can't be walking past when you're doing it um so it's sort of i think from a technology point of view it's uh it certainly is something that's worth adding, but I don't think that it alone is ever going to be a a sole input method for, for basic. I think it's going to be more of an augmentation. So I was saying before with speech, it's like it can be used to provide context perhaps and um, motion tracking on a smaller scale. uh, They also the ability to track what people are doing at their desk, like their head position and seeing where they can move the cursor with their eyes. There are some technology, there's a couple of devices out there that can do that as well. Um, But ultimately I was just thinking about, um, where that's going from microsoft's point of view with the connect specifically i think the azure connect was um announced in february this year and that's just a development kit at the moment but they're not giving up on it but um it, it still it seems to be it needs to improve its accuracy so it's not as easily confused and um I, I also wonder from from a from a computer input point of view i mean for gaming sure it's a it's a novelty but you know what activities do we do where we're standing or 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 sitting and motion tracking is going to be a a useful interface for for, for which tasks. I I suppose noisy environments, I can see that um, because you could gesture to do something that would be essentially silent. Um, But beyond that, I struggle. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. All righty, cool. Let's uh, hop and skip on to the last one I had on for inputs, which was was neural because, I mean, it's cool. And why not, right? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I... um, I dug into this one a little bit because I've been a little bit out of the loop on this one. So um, brain computer interfaces or or BCIs, um, they usually have in the past used electroencephalograms or electrodes in caps put on your scalp. I've never actually put one of these on, have you?
1: I uh, no, I haven't I haven't done anything like this. I've only read about it or seen videos about them.
0: Yeah, I was I just wanted to just wanted to check. Um of course you could also get uh, do functional MRIs um because that tracks blood flow in the brain, but you know that might be more accurate, but it's not exactly not easily portable and not very easy to do. So um yes. In the future of course, there's always implants and then we start to um sound like we're becoming the Borg, which is uh which is both exciting and scary at the same time. But um, in any case, uh, interestingly, in the mid-90s, there were a few of those neuroprosthetic devices uh, and a lot of those um, sort of to try and to just try and get basic movements and move a cursor slightly up or slightly down or left or right. And when it comes to actually doing something like more useful, uh, June 2004, a guy called Matthew Nagel had the first implant of the cyberkinetics brain gate and it's, uh, it was uh, trying to overcome the effects of tetraplegia, which isn't like quadriplegia. It's it's uh, it's restricted movement in, uh, in all four uh, limbs mm. and uh, to, to varying degrees of success. And there have been a couple of iterations of that technology. But ultimately, it's still got a very, very long way to go. And I think most publicly recently, Elon Musk was noted because he sort of invested $27 million uh, in a company they called Neuralink. And that was in three years ago. And uh, they're working on what he likes to call the neural lace uh, to interface the brain with a computer system. Uh, yeah, futuristic stuff, but
1: yep. Well, I mean, they're, they're, This is something that's going to take a lot of time, but there have been all of these really encouraging things where you've got something on your head, or they've, in some cases, they've placed electrodes in people's brains as a part of their, you know, some brain surgery that they were doing. But the idea of like being able to move move a mouse. Or something like that with with your mind, um, that that you know it is related. I mean, we talk about accessibility. You mentioned that um, with other with with somebody who has a movement disorder. You know, we obviously know about. Like Stephen Hawking having having the ability to communicate with a, you know, I, I think it was like a cheek twitch was his only kind of like reliable movement that he could do. But that was enough to build a system for him. And the more you can kind of unlock either by mapping to something that the brain can control or even better mapping to something happening in the brain that you have the possibility to do a lot. And then I would throw in, you know, there are these things that um, potentially get unlocked by machine learning and by um, sensors that we've got to maybe intuit a little bit more about intention. There was a story a few weeks ago about uh, being able to synthesize a voice based on somebody sub-vocalizing mm. a, uh, a, a phrase and that it was understandable by, it was still sounds really weird, but it was understandable by like 80% of people or 80% of the things of the passages were understandable. And it was this idea of you do a, you have a brain scan and people are sub vocalizing a passage of text and it actually kind of comes out and it has to do with sort of like muscle movements and things like that. And, and, uh, even though you're not speaking, you're still thinking about how you would say Mm. it. And, you know, that's all like I, this is all really interesting. It makes me it's a I used to read science fiction novels about this stuff, like having a sub vocalization to an intelligent agent that spoke in your ear or whatever. And I think that's never going to happen. It's like it's like a time travel mm-hmm. or faster than light travel It's never going to happen. Yeah. Now I think about it and I think that will probably happen. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, but there has been enough research about figuring out ways for us to understand what's going on in our brains, and it doesn't have to be like we've figured out that we can wire to a particular neuron and tap into the brain. It can be things that are kind of gross control levels and yet filtered to the point that it can be it becomes a usable interface of some sort. And then throw in behavioral Imaging and things like that, which seems really weird, but yeah, the idea that a computer can like look at you and know what you're thinking or know, you know, what you're trying to do and use that as a part of it, too. So if you can imagine, you know, any situation where like uh, imagine a kid who's uh, fixated on something on the screen that they're trying to move a mouse to. Um, on a computer and the computer can look at them and see where their eyes are looking and see the frustration on their face yeah. and go, oh, well, that's the target. I'm going to move it there. That's a maybe not the best example, but like mm-hmm. that, I think all of that stuff is in the realm of possibility, which gets you to an interesting place where whether they're reading your mind by literally reading your mind by scanning your brain Mm. or whether they're reading your mind by watching your body and going, I know what you're thinking. Mm. Either way, I I think that's going to happen. I think it's just a matter of, of time and it may not be in our lifetimes, but it does feel like that is something that is technically possible as we learn more about the brain, and about uh, you know computer vision stuff, and also you know the equivalent of like a, a, a an fMRI, the idea mm. that we can actually sort of like see how the brain is working in real time, and and then maybe do something with that.
0: Absolutely, and, and I and I do agree. It is I can see stuff like that happening in the future, but it probably won't be in our lifetimes. the The, the thing that's interesting about it is. I don't want to get down into the whole limbic system or neocortex part of the brain or any of that sort of stuff, but it, it can—it really, actually, is quite dangerous. If you want to do implants into the brain, um, people could it could go bad in all sorts of ways. And I think Black Mirror sort of had a few episodes where it explored that how it could go horribly wrong, mm-hmm. for example. Uh, but there's also a limit if we don't have implants to how much you can actually extract. Um, when you've got sensors sitting outside of your skull, on your scalp, it's, it's that's going to be pretty limited. So if you're going to need to go to implants to directly connect with neurons to get data in and out at any rate that's ever going to be useful enough to overtake our conventional sensors. And I think that that's, that's really more the point. And, and until we get to that stage, it's really not going to do anything much at all. It's just going to be a, a passing curiosity. And I mean, I have no idea how how far off that's going to be. But the interesting thing, as I thought about just the dictation use case, and this is the part you mentioned before, I wanted to circle back to is, you know, no one really knows exactly how fast we think in terms of words, but there were some estimates that it's somewhere between 1,000 and 3,000 words per minute. And that is massively broad for starters. But I suppose in terms of writing, though, the word thinking rate is just, well, for the want of a better expression, you know, when you are writing something, you'll you'll read it back, you'll review it, you'll revise it, you'll rewrite parts of it as part of the you know that, that creative process. And if you don't do that, then you are going to end up with gibberish or something that's really pretty horrible and doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense or is not very polished. And ultimately, it's not necessarily the speed at which it can actually read; it's 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 how long it takes us to process and reprocess, and the the, the act of 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 handwriting it and then moving to a keyboard and then moving to speech recognition. Oh, yeah it's like all of these are going to increase the throughput speed but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to improve the quality of anything because you still have to go back and do that process of reviewing revising and uh, and, and yeah
1: yeah yeah it's um i read a, a short story uh the other day um about the it it's 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 very much like a black mirror kind of thing mm. um and it's by ted chang who's a great short story writer and um the, the idea behind it is it's two things happening at once. It's it's this concept of changing human cognition by everybody's wearing a, you know, video cameras on their bodies all the time and that all gets recorded. And then secondarily a search engine exists to index your entire life. And this is with the black mirror part of it. Mm-hmm. And what, what his argument is, you know, at that point do we stop worrying about committing things to memory. It's a little bit like uh, how I think even today, having an always-on internet and a web browser at the ready means that there are, are uh, things that you used to maybe file away for future reference that you just don't bother now because Mm. you can just look it up if you need to. And it changes how you prioritize processing of information. And, you know, what he says about this is, do we need memory anymore? If you have a thing that's always in your field of vision, you know, it's a connected device, it's attached to you, it's in your eye, you know, it's in your ear and you can say, you know, what was that time that we had that argument? And it can immediately show you the argument, like exactly what you were saying. And so you don't have the, um, the unreliability of memory, which is great, although there's also an argument that we forget things for a reason and mm. it makes our lives easier to kind of smooth out that stuff. Yeah. But also does it mean that we no longer have the capacity to think About this stuff and remember it because we now don't need to bother because we know that somebody else is doing it and we use our brain for something else instead. But what is interesting about this story is it's juxtaposed with a story about a missionary coming to Indonesia to a tribe that doesn't have a written language and teaching a boy who lives there uh, how to write and what writing is and how the concept of writing. And keeping and writing things down was itself a fundamental technological shift that changed the way we think. And I love that story because of that juxtaposition that, you know, he's making an argument about how technology may change how we think, but his argument is also it's already happened because written language changed how we thought. Mm. And I I like that because when we talk about this technology interface stuff, I think that's the truth of it is all of this stuff, it has the potential to change how we process information. But um, the human brain is incredibly adaptable. And who's to say, you know, when you talk about going from writing, handwriting to writing on a keyboard to using dictation, um, you know, that there may not be other paths that are different if not better, then different and might be perfectly fine. But uh, it is kind of amazing to see, to, to see that, but also to think about how we are not the beginning of a process. We are, we are uh, the products of a long period of time where humans have been building technological solutions of various kinds that have changed our perception of language and history and even timekeeping over the course of hundreds or thousands of years. And this is just the latest in that line.
0: This is while I'm talking to you, Jason. I never would have thought of going there, eh? That's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. Thank you for bringing that up. I, um, I'm actually curious about reading that book now. Um, I might get a link from you later. Um, <laughs> so that's um, – yeah, okay. So you've managed to blow me away there. I need to just uh, – hmm, right, back on back on track. Um, hmm. I think we've done a lot of the inputs Uh, at this point. We should probably switch to outputs considering um, how long we've been going. So um, we're just going to say, okay, inputs, we're done. Before we go any further, I'd like to talk about our sponsor for this episode, and that's Backblaze, a cloud backup solution for your Mac or PC. You might have heard about Backblaze before, and if you haven't tried Backblaze yet, I strongly suggest you consider it. And let me tell you why. Backblaze is an off-premises backup solution with no gimmicks and is truly unlimited. That's right, if you have 8 terabytes of storage either in or attached to your computer or more than that, it's still only $6 a month for that machine. Backblaze backs up everything. Documents, photos, drawings, videos, music, project files of any size. The lot. You can set it to back up automatically once a day between specific hours. If you like, you're in complete control. And Backblaze just backs up and then it stays out of the way until you need it. Once it's backed up, you can get access to your data from anywhere via the mobile app, via a web browser, and then you can restore anything from just one file to all of your files. It's up to you. If you've got a huge amount to restore and you don't want to download at all, that's fine. Backblaze have got you covered. They call it restore by mail. You can pick a thumb drive or a hard drive, and they'll just send it to you with all your files on it sent by FedEx, and in the US it's sent overnight. When you've got your files back safely, you can just keep that drive, but if you don't like the colour, that's fine, just send it back within 30 days, and Backblaze will give you a full refund for that restore. How good is that? Backblaze are backing up over 750 petabytes of user data, with over 40 billion files restored so far. And that's a heck of a lot of memories and documents that otherwise could have been lost forever. So why do I love Backblaze so much? Actually, it's because they saved a huge amount of my data years ago when one of my hard drives failed. Long before Backblaze was a sponsor, I signed up on a recommendation from a friend after one of my three external 4 terabyte drives died. A few weeks later, my time capsule drive also died. And if it hadn't been for Backblaze when one of my remaining drives also died, seriously, it did. I would have lost it all, but because Backblaze had it, I got it back. My only regret was that I hadn't signed up months earlier, because if I had of I wouldn't have lost anything at all. So if you visit this URL, backblaze.com pragmatic, you can sign up for a 15-day no-risk free trial. It's easy to set it up, and using that URL means that they'll know you're supporting the engineered network as well. They have a great discount for annual plans too, so don't take a chance with your data. Start protecting yourself from a worst-case scenario like I did. And don't wait. Start today. Thank you to Backblaze for sponsoring the Engineered Network. Outputs. um, And the biggest one is obviously our eyes because our eyes can process a massive amount of information and it doesn't disturb, well, generally speaking, unless, of course, you're lying in bed and you've got a very bright screen on your phone that's disturbing anyone else who might be there um, in any case. But generally speaking, um, screens. Okay, (laughs) So let's talk first about um, screens are well, just well, flat, single, two-dimensional screens at a distance away. And I mean, essentially, you've got things that you can look on them would be things like movies, um, just general sh- shows. I hate saying television because you're using television in a sentence, but television shows, I guess, for the one of a better way of saying it, just general entertainment. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that it's not as useful as an information-rich display and I just keep thinking about presentations and presentations that are put on big screens in a room. You can't have lots of text on them because when you're reading at a distance, it's extremely difficult to fit a lot in there to, at a size that doesn't cause eye strain. And so you've got to have you know more more visualization and less words. And it's um it's uh it's it, there's a limit. So you can't. It's like working on a computer, um, sitting in front on, on a couch on your laptop, projecting it up onto the screen. I, I actually tried that once a long time ago and it's almost impossible. Have you ever, have you ever had a go at that? No. My advice is don't. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> just don't. Uh, but it's just, it's just, it's too difficult. You need to be close to the screen because you need that resolution. And a lot of people um, in, in the industry, we like uh, talk about uh, uh, pixels per inch or um, screen resolution. And... Uh, I started thinking about this going back to the days of, of Retina, and when, when Retina first came out, for example, on the iPhone was almost ten years ago. And I was thinking back to those days, and and sc- disc- displays on on smartphones from the very beginning, extremely pixelated. And I found a really interesting blog article um, from a guy called Phil Plate. And, um, oh yeah, the bad astronomer. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. And um, and he was talking about um, going through the steps of how the human eye tells the difference in terms of uh, of that that pixel density. And it's not so the human eye can't tell the difference between a real object and a picture of a real object. Uh, and the measurement at that at that uh, transition point is one arc minute, which is for someone with you know twenty twenty vision. And for people that don't think about arc minutes, like I don't generally. Um, <laughs> it's um it works out to zero point zero one six six recurring degrees, and yeah, yeah, and if you do the math and you hold a screen in front of you and it's about twelve inches or you know thirty centimeters or one foot choose your choose your uh, imperial or metric uh, measure uh, you hold that away from your eye about a foot away, and that works out to about two hundred and eighty six uh p p i and the iphone uh, which was the first iPhone with retina was it the four i think what was it the four? I'm trying to remember. Mm. I'm sorry. I should have researched that one. Anyka, it had 300 PPI, and and I remember. Yeah, I
1: think I think that's right. Yeah,
0: and Steve Jobs on stage saying that something magical happens at that sweet spot at 300 PPI, and that's why. And uh, it's the sort of thing that with handheld screens, you know, you can hold them that close, and hence that that PPI will be sufficient. The further away they go, the less strenuous that less of a requirement that becomes, and the closer to your eye it gets, the worse it gets. And we'll get to whole virtual reality later on. But um, the the great thing about handheld screens, as opposed to a TV screen, though, is that you can adjust the viewing angle really easy. You look up close, pull it closer, put it further away. Whereas if you're in front of a TV, if you want to get a bit of a look at all that text on the screen, you're not going to drag the couch closer. I mean, well, well you might, but I, I mean, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Anyway, so if screens get too big, you've got to move your head around to see everything. So there's there's another limit. And the size of, a, of an average room is also a limit. So the whole point of all of this is that we need to sort of get our head around what is the optimal interface really for an output for a screen for what tasks. And that's what I'm trying to get to. And I think that uh, the reason that TVs, uh, televisions, and large large displays – uh, so popular for watching movies shows playing games is that you can sit in a comfortable chair or a couch um you and you can't do that have a comfortable couch one foot away from a screen because there's no room and ultimately that's not very relaxing so the ability to sit back and relax and so ultimately i think that is one of the main drivers and Watching movies, shows, and playing games, there isn't a lot of text to read. So, because that's not very, you know, and from a distance, that's not very relaxing. You're straining your eyes. So, it's best if it's a TV like 10 to 30 feet away. I guess it varies, doesn't it? But, and you don't have to hold the screen. So, there's minimal fatigue. And, and I, I, that's, I guess that's my take on why TVs are best for that.
1: Yeah, I I think that's I think that's reasonable. I have definitely my optometrist suggested that I project my computer screen on a far wall, and it would improve my vision. I was like, "Mm, no, mm, no, that's not going to happen. But, but you're right. The um, it's I'm struck by how sometimes. Uh, we pe- we focus on like having a TV in our a room, a big TV in a room. When if you held your iPad at that same distance, it would be uh, bigger in your field of vision. Mm. And there are ergonomic issues with holding it there. But there's also that uh, just the idea, like maybe it you know maybe it doesn't matter where where those pixels are as long as you can are seeing the full quality and it's in your field of vision at that side. And people use virtual reality to. Watch a movie, which I've never really understood because it's low resolution. But it does; it's a different way of of uh, of approaching the you know cinema experience. I know because that's yeah. There's other things involved, but other than your eyes, as you said, you're sitting there and relaxing, and that's a different. You you probably enter a different kind of mental state when you're doing that. Um, than you would if you were writing on that TV set.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, exactly right. And um, I I've I actually hadn't heard of people wearing wearing a VR headset to watch a movie. That's a new one. Um, I'll I'll pass on that as well for a bunch of reasons. But um, I, I suppose the the funny thing is that this is about optimal interface. This isn't about is it possible? Well, yes, it is. Yes, you can hold an iPad screen, and yes, you're right. It would take up um your larger than that field of vision than a than a 40-inch screen that's multiple, you know, tens of feet away. Absolutely. And you may even get an, a better quality result in terms of visually because the the pixels per inch on that iPad might be superior to what the TV can provide even at that distance. So ultimately, though, the downside of that is the fatigue. And I, my my problem is that if you think about the vast majority of people uh, on on balance, I think the reason that television is so popular is because of it is the most relaxing way of doing it because there is minimal fatigue. Uh, I mean, it's the ultimate in laziness, I guess. You could also think of it like that, but you know, that's maybe that's being too harsh. But but that's really the point. In, as far as I'm concerned, yes, you can use an iPad for that. You can actually watch movies on your phone. And yes, if you really are crazy, you can watch them on a virtual reality headset apparently. Um, but that doesn't mean you probably should. And it's the sort of thing that's never really going to be that popular because of all of the other compromises. And uh, I guess just then to quickly k- jump across to um, the other screens like our computer screens. And uh, ultimately, I think in terms of size, there's, there's a limit because, uh, again, as you're close to the screen, your field of vision is going to be uh, very different to something that's further away on a wall. So about about between 20 inches and 32 inches. I mean, I'm looking right now, I've got a a 28 inch 4K display. uh, And on the left, I've got a 24 inch display, which is just normal 1080p. And then there's a laptop screen off to the right. And that's, uh, it's a 13 inch MacBook. So 13.3 inches or whatever that screen size is off the top of my head. I can't remember about that. And, you know, that's one feet, one foot to maybe three feet away and, that sort of distance means that you can have lots of high definition images, text numbers, pretty much any purpose you like. And you can watch movies on that quite comfortably, but you're not going to be as comfortable sit- as sitting in a couch, but it's perfect for information dense uh, tasks. Yep. Okay. Um, not too much to go on about that. Um, <laughs> the la- the last, I, I want to circle back to VR and-, and augmented reality at the end, but um, just on glanceable information, because this is sort of a newer thing, is that, I mean, it's not a new thing having a wristwatch, that's for sure, but <laughs> it's been, they've been around a while. But the smaller screen smartwatches, and I think it's it leads us down the path of glanceable screens. And I think the problem with a big computer screen is that they, because you can put so much on it and it's so information dense, it's not glanceable. And you want something that's glanceable, you need on a smaller screen then you need to think about well what can i put on what what am i restricted to i can't have lots of text i can't have high definition images i can't do certain things like that but what i can do is i can display things like the time the weather um you use more iconography use more symbols very low information density but because it's glanceable it's very very useful
1: yeah i I like the idea of having small devices that, at a glance, give you small amounts of information. It's not a computer. I'm not meant to intensively use my Apple Watch. I'm meant to be able to glance at it or maybe tap a couple of times, do what I need to do and move on. There's something to be said for that. That's a very different kind of approach than a device that you're meant to use intently. Um, I thought you were also going to mention, forgive me if I'm skipping ahead there, but I found that one of the great aspects of the Apple Watch for me is, uh, the, is it's touch output interface, which is that it, uh, you know, it taps my wrist or buzzes my wrist when I need to pay attention to something. Mm -hmm. And I love that because nobody else can see that and I can choose to react or not react and it doesn't make a loud noise. I actually have sound turned off on my Apple Watch. I never want to hear it, Mm, but I, uh, but uh, feeling it, I don't have a problem with, and I think that's a great use of of that interface and uh if you've ever done that thing where you're driving using apple maps and you're wearing an apple watch and it taps your wrist when it's time to turn that's so great and it's it's a not it is an interface it is an output via touch and i think it's great
0: absolutely and um yes you are skipping ahead but that's totally okay and we're definitely yeah absolutely right <laughs> <laughs> so uh i don't want to go into too much more about watches we'll, we'll keep moving but that's from a visual. Those are the screen sizes that I was sort of thinking. I uh, thinking about, and one of the things just on on smartphone screens is that there is a a growing uh, preference from some people to have larger on um, smartphone screens, and I think that that's good for certain use cases. But the problem is that the larger it gets, the less glanceable it gets. So it sort of occurs to me that the the larger screens on the oh good Xs Max Plus Mega uh, phone. You know, that's your eyes are then going to when you look at that screen. If you try and glance at it, you're going to be searching through that screen trying to find what you're trying to f- trying to, to find. It's going to take more time because it's a bigger screen. And so, ultimately, I feel like as we have more information that's available, glanceably on a watch, you can actually get away with larger phones. But you wouldn't use your phone as a glanceable for glanceable information. You use it for for things more like reading or watching videos as a compromise maybe. But um, in any case. Right. Um, Let's move on to sound. Got to keep moving. So um, sound really quickly. Don't want to spend a lot of time on it. Headphones and speakers. So first of all, headphones, the great thing about headphones is they're private. Um, And the great thing is there's lots of choices. And honestly, um, you can get headphones without cords now. They need to be firmly attached or inserted into your ear canal for exercise, for example. Uh, And if you want to wear them for a long period of time, then you can get comfortable ones. To be honest, um, I think that in group environments, headphones are the absolute winner for sound feedback. Um, when you're in an enclosed space on your own, I think speakers are probably better because there's there's less fatigue. There's nothing to fall out of your ears, um, and uh, and so on. I um, I actually have. I'm just I just thought it might be fun just to list the headphone number of headphones that I've got. Um, so the ones I'm wearing right now, Audio Technica uh, M30xs. And they're sound-isolating over-ear headphones. They're great for podcasting. Uh, but I also have AirPods that are just hanging on by a thread, like in terms of battery life. They're, I, I need mm-hmm. to get some new ones. Um, anyway, but they're great for just general exercise, walking to and from the office, working in the yard, whatever. Although, interestingly, we shifted to a, a more agile, in air quotes, open office seating uh, environment at work. And there's a lot of noise, a lot of distraction. So now I'm thinking about getting another head, set of headphones that are noise-cancelling to try and save me from the noise.
1: Yeah, I have a lot of headphones too. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's it's I think there's a difference between interface and like media playback but but still mm. the the definitely sure. um you know I I thought there was a um a presentation of Macworld Expo a few years ago, of the idea of an intelligent agent. And really, you know, the, all of these agents that we talked about earlier, it's a two-way street. It's a—it's an audio interface, usually in return. And the idea that maybe the the smart glasses that everybody talked about, that Google got everybody excited about, mm-hmm. that maybe those are a lot less necessary than something you could put in your ear that allows an intelligent agent to interact with you and tell you what you need to know Uh, And I think Apple with AirPods, that is a thing that it definitely thinks is a place that that this is going is the ability for your devices to talk to each other and they know where you are and they maybe know where you're looking and Mm -hmm. which direction you're pointing. And very subtly, they can say, uh, you know, you need it's time for lunch, cross the street and then go down a block and turn right. And nobody needs to know that. And the problem with our eyes is is for portability reasons like you got to shine light on the back of somebody's eye mm. in order for you to see it and that means you need to have something hanging in front of their eye or on their eye mm-hmm. and that's a lot harder to do than um stick something in your ear so i feel like like there's a lot to be said for these audio interfaces in terms of giving you feedback and i use an audio interface all the time when i when i go running um, i'm listening to podcasts but i also have an interval app running that tells me when to run and when to stop and that's all by audio on from my apple watch so um, i'm not i don't have to look at anything it doesn't i don't have to keep checking to see if it's time for me to start or stop i just have to do whatever i've been told to do by the interface and it tells me when it's time to do the next thing and that's been that's a very good um, way to approach that because when I'm running, I don't really want to keep checking my watch or my phone in order to find when I'm supposed to start or stop.
0: Oh, for sure. Absolutely. And I think that um, that, that uh, there was an iPod, uh, the first iPod that didn't have a, a screen on it and um, there was um, you, your playlists and it would go through and, and, and create auto, auto, uh, an audio Sorry, a uh, text-to-speech audio of what the playlist name was, so that when it downloaded to the iPod, you can actually flick through it, and it would tell you through the through the speakers or the through the headphones, you know, what each of them was as you flick through it, so that you could then pick. And it was a, a it was purely a, a it was a touch input, but it was all, full, totally audio audible feedback, um, which was very which was very nifty at the time. Um, just a little bit on speakers, just briefly is that, uh, I think that speakers are great if they we're talking about speakers that play music that are intended to play music. Uh, one of the trends that I've seen a lot more of recently and HomePod is one example is smart speakers that, but the HomePod is a smart speaker that is almost more about playing music with beautiful sound than it is more so about speech recognition, although that's probably more of a Siri thing, but never mind. Um, but uh, you know other, other ones in the market, other smart speakers, they're more about that input than they are about the output, although they do technically do both. The, the problem with it is with any speaker systems, you've got to be mindful of those people around you because if you have you know anything coming through a, a speaker that's other people are going to hear, it's going to annoy them and interfere with what they are trying to do. So you know headphones are, are generally a better option. But the, the thing is that if you're in the house by yourself, then having speakers playing, and using smart um, using smart speakers with audio feedback like a like a HomePod, it's still a better option if it's reliable because ultimately you don't have to have anything inserted in your ear or hanging off of your head, so it's more comfortable. Yep. righty. No, 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 let's keep moving. Touch. And you uh, mentioned this one, so we'll start with this one: haptic feedback. And I thought about haptic feedback because I absolutely love that on my watch. And I am exactly the same as you. I have turned off all of the sound on my phone and on my watch. It is all haptic, so when the phone rings, it never rings, and I love that because it means um, all in my life. I've had that many ringtones. I mean, a lot. And so whenever and, and and once you've done that, you cycle through a few dozen ringtones in your life, and they're all standard ringtones. And other people have their phones and they'll go off. And it's like, hey, is that my phone ringing? And you have that moment of panic when the phone rings. Is that my phone ringing? And, of course, now it's all haptic on the watch. I know it's my phone because it's only tapping my wrist and no one else knows. It's magic. I love it. Yep. Yep, 100%. So haptic is fantastic. And I thought about haptic as well. There's also haptic feedback from touchpads. Uh, so the trackpad, for example. Um, so my Magic Trackpad 2 and my laptop trackpads has got uh, haptic feedback, which is fantastic. Right um and it's also great on the watch for alarms um i use my i wear my watch to to bed as well and and it wakes me up with an alarm in the morning tapping me on the wrist uh, feverishly to tell me to wake up works really well
1: yeah i i really appreciate it for timer alarms when i'm cooking mm-hmm. i will set one or two and then um you know the 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 audible alarms on the HomePod or things or the or the uh, Amazon Echo will go off and that's fine but I really prefer when I get that uh, timer just tapping on my wrist because nobody again nobody else needs to know I don't need to invade the the shared space that is our audio space in our house it's just for me and I got the message and I can I can act on it and I like it a lot I think. Um, I think software has a long way to go in terms of haptics. Mm -hmm. I think that I've been disappointed with the haptic support on my Mac and also on my iPhone. I think on the iPhone, it's a little bit better that people have really, because you can count on modern iPhones having that taptic engine in there, that they the software is a little bit better at that. But I think that more could be done with using feeling of a, a tap as... Uh, useful feedback Um, and the Mac stuff I've been disappointed by. I think the Mac stuff, even though I do have a Magic Trackpad and I use it and I love it, the haptics on that beyond the actual click haptic have been disappointing um, in all the apps that I've tried it that support it. It it has not really made a difference in my life, which is too bad because I think that uh, I I would like to believe anyway that uh, software could carefully use that stuff and make it a valuable part of the user experience, but I haven't experienced that myself. Yeah,
0: I I think you got a point there. I uh, hadn't really thought about beyond the trackpad, but it could you could use the haptic feedback on on a laptop for all sorts of different purposes. And I think uh, as a feedback mechanism. But I suppose the one problem I have with haptics is that there is a there is a finite amount that you can do with it. It's not like you can. Well, I, I was going to say it's not like you could tap out Morse code. Actually, you probably could, but I mean, I'm not sure you'd want to do that. But you could. Um, so there's always going to be a limit to what it can do. It's great for binary events and, and you can have some level of like sequencing like uh, you, you mentioned the uh, the turn signals uh, on the Apple Watch and it'll give you the feverishly boom, 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 boom when it's a left and uh, like a boom, 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 boom if it was a right or something like that. I'm, I'm probably mixing those around but, you know, so you can get some differentiation between them for sure. Uh, and even different applications like I can tell the difference between a tap from iMessage versus a tap from Outlook that an email's come in versus an iMessage has come in and there are subtle differences there but there is a limit it's not like you're ever going to get anything to the sort of resolution uh, and touch feedback and th- of something like text and then I thought about it because I'm a you know Although my eyesight is terrible, I can still see because I have glasses and therefore, technically, I have 20 20 vision. Lucky me. But um, in any case, I think we're both in that sort of camp. But the point is that um, if you are visually impaired, seriously visually impaired, there actually are refreshable braille displays. You can actually get feedback through braille, which is technically a touch mechanism for visually impaired people. Yeah. Mind you, that's going to take a lot of training and a lot of practice. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah, so it's not exactly like everyone's going to use those because it's a silent way of reading a screen with your eyes closed. In any case, the technology technically exists. All right. So, moving on. Um, real quick, smell.
1: Not much. <laughs> <laughs> I, I it's a sense. I got to cover it um in which- It is. No, I I was I've been anticipating this all along and what I will say uh, is I was uh I think um I occasionally I see a movie where I think or a TV show and I think I am so glad that Um, nobody has figured out how to communicate smell through a broadcast medium because you know you you can very effectively um, show something and imply that it must smell terrible but the last thing you want to do is is gross out your audience by flooding the room that they're in with a terrible smell and i feel like smell interfaces are probably not ever going to happen for that reason i'm also a pretty sensitive (laughs) smelling person i actually use like unscented Di- uh, or uh, laundry detergent mm. and things like that. Yep. So yep. I would not really be interested in a random creator flooding my. Uh, home with weird molecules that smell bad <laughs> but it seems like that's yeah. uh it's just never going to happen and i am okay with it yeah
0: yeah exactly i just <laughs> i uh just f- f- interestingly we had the same problem with um with some fabric softener we bought some fabric softener and it was on special and we tried it and it was so overpowering and it was so sweet to smell it was overpowering and we had to throw it out it was just we couldn't have it um but yeah, look, absolutely. I think that there's a massively um, narrow field where this is useful. Uh, I was thinking about where would it be useful. If you're shopping for fragrances online, I'm guessing that might be useful. But I don't know. I mean, what are we going to do? I guess buy a thousand dollar scent generating machine to plug in.
1: Well, yeah, you have to, you have to you have to have built something with all the molecules in it that it can release yeah. in ways to emulate those. And it seems, and then you'd have to have replacement packs. It'd be like an inkjet printer for your. Smells and <laughs> nobody, nobody really wants this. Nobody wants this.
0: I'm sure someone does, but I can't imagine there's very many people in the world. So probably not. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing I thought about with with smell is that if it was a, an enclosed theater environment, you've got well if I'm walking into a room that has a smell, I can walk out of a room. It's, um, and that's, that's real life. But if you're in a movie theater, if you let a smell into the room, how are you going to get the smell out of the room when they change scenes in the movie? It's like, well, that smell is going to linger and there's going to be smell lag. And uh, anyway, so no matter how much I sliced it, even with virtual reality, like augmenting that I'm actually glad this technology really isn't very advanced. And hopefully it never really becomes anything. Cause I can't, yeah, I'm like, I'm happy with it the way it is anyway. Um, and taste, can I just say, same kind of comment, but there's even less available. Yeah, <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's exactly it. Which is, this is the, this, you know, the molecule detecting senses are problematic on one level, and on another level, it's fine, right? Like yep. I can see how ultimately you would want, se- you would want taste and smell. In a completely immersive, like virtual reality application or something like that. Mm -hmm. But that is so far off when you've got something that is completely realistic in all the other senses. And now it's like, okay, you know what we got to do now? We got to do taste and we got to do smell. Mm -hmm. But until then, I just don't think it's, you know, because you could be in the perfect, imagine being in the perfect virtual reality simulation Mm. and then, you know, your roommate burns some toast. (laughs) Like, Okay, I get it. That would be that would break the spell, but mm. um, we're a long way from there. Yeah, and
0: I'm comfortable with that. Uh, yep.
1: <laughs> um, in terms of neural,
0: um, technically again, it, it is an output as well, but we talked about that in input. So input output same. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go over that again. We already talked about it. So that leaves us to finally just talking about some of the devices specifically that we sort of touched on and had so this is stuff we haven't really talked about and that's virtual reality and augmented reality so the virtual reality stuff i it's been around for 20 30 years and i mean okay it was horr- horrifically terrible like in the late 80s early 90s when it was first like oh this is the future and everything and those things were so heavy and the resolution was terrible and you couldn't wear them for very long and I thought about the problem with virtual reality and ultimately the problem from, from my point of view is that because it has to wrap around your eyes to, to place you in that environment and that restriction, that creates a restriction around your eyes and ultimately that means you're not going to get airflow around your eyes. It's going to be warm and hot and sweaty if you're exerting yourself. It's going to not be that comfortable and the, that's just from the, the wearing comfort point of view. So the weight of the headset's a massive problem. And the other problem is that because you're trying to simulate the real world, action and reaction uh, and that time lag, that latency, that can be really jarring unless it's like really, really fast. And so I sort of, I did a bit of research into what the current best systems in VR are today and the lag, the best lag somewhere between 18 to 22 milliseconds, something like that. Um, have, Have you played much with virtual reality recently?
1: I haven't. I have used it. A few times, I used an Oculus Rift once and didn't throw up, which was very exciting. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> and I've also used those Google Cardboard kind of things where you put a smartphone mm. in a in a uh, in a over a pair of goggles, basically, mm-hmm. and it uh, uses the gyroscope and the phone to give you kind of a simple uh, VR experience. Mm. And I think it's fun. I think it's great for gaming applications and probably other applications. And it's going to, you know, the pace of mobile technology innovation suggests to me that this stuff will get good. If it's not good already, it will be getting good before long. You know, Oculus is doing a standalone device that, you know, it's still not as good as the one that's tied to a $2,000 gaming PC, but we're going to get to the point where you're going to have something that you can put on your head um, that is going to give you a very high uh, frame rate high quality experience where it's going to look and sound like you are in a different place, and I think that's great without like cables dragging back and attaching you to a wall somewhere and I think that will be amazing for certain applications and I'm not sure again, I'm not sure if watching a movie in it is what I wanna do, <laughs> maybe, but um, I definitely the idea that not only playing games but other like social applications and could be could be fun i feel like it's a it's going to be real um, but i don't think it's ever going to be change the world real in the way that maybe it's been sold or if if so it might be a, a while
0: yeah I, I tend to agree and i think that there's a certain there's certain limits that we have to the technology has to um has to reach uh, or exceed sorry before it's going to even become that appealing and uh, I mean, you mentioned the the fact that being wireless—that's a big one. I'm being untethered, I should say, and because uh, being tethered is is a big issue, uh, and because it it does break the spell, as it were. And uh, in order to avoid, because a lot of people get virtual reality sickness, it's actually a coined term apparently um which to me is just motion sickness really because I, I get ho- yeah. horrible motion sickness and i and i learned that if i put these special patches that um i can order on, on an online chemist because for whatever reason they're not um sold in australia but never mind um and, and it's fine you wear them for a few days you don't get seasick and then um your eyes go all blurry but don't worry about that because at least you're not seasick uh, anyway um, never mind that <laughs> the point yeah the point is that uh Less than about five milliseconds, ten milliseconds of lag I think a minimum, and it needs to be probably less than five for most people to not get virtual reality sickness so that 's really a necessary step for starters and that 's also going to require better motion tracking of um, of head position and arms and legs and everything and and movement and that's and that's also that's also a challenge and uh, then I thought to myself well. Okay. So we, we need to have sub five millisecond latency. We need to have higher resolution screens than we currently have because at that distance from the eyes, you know, the, the, the angle between the pixels is, is exacerbated quite a bit. Um, Yeah. It needs to be more responsive motion tracking. And I think ultimately the headsets need to be significantly lighter. They're still too heavy. And because after a long period of time, you know, they, they, you will get fatigue. You will, your neck and shoulders. Yeah. So, at the moment i think that that all of those problems i reckon 2 to 5 years maybe it's 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 um it's still a little ways off but you can see that that the the technology is accelerating and we are getting there closer but we're still not quite there
1: yeah and it's it's a lot of the same stuff that we use for making smartphones right i mean that's the, that's the thing is it's small sensors it's very small powerful mm. uh, processors and gpus uh it's high resolution displays Uh, you know, the gyroscopes and all of those things like the smartphone revolution has pushed that stuff to the point where, you know, it isn't ridiculous that you can stick a phone in a piece of cardboard and attach it to your face and have the right app sort of give you a VR experience. That's actually, you know, it's not ideal. And the ideal is going to be something that's more purpose built and that has the smarts of a a smartphone built inside of it. But um, all of our tech is pushing in that direction which is very good for people who are excited about vr because mm. they're going to be able to reap this uh the advantages of this even though it's not you know everybody on earth is going to have a smartphone not everybody on earth is going to have a vr rig but in mm. the end the pressure from the from the smartphone industry will give that power to the vr industry
0: absolutely and and that's true so that that industry is going to drive vr forward even faster which is fantastic um and I was just thinking about finally about VR, what what's the real value of it? And I mean, beyond gaming, which is obvious, uh, well, I say obvious, I mean that's been the, the market that's been pushed for the most. Uh, but there's also training simulators, you know, for certain tasks. And and you wouldn't need to build physical replicas, for example. So if you've got a control panel or a plane cockpit or the driver's cab on a train, you know, those sorts of things, you know, even even learning to drive. You don't actually have to have a physical you don't have to build a physical analog replica of, of what you're training people with. You can actually do it all virtually. And I think that's actually quite huge in terms of training simulations. But then again, maybe that's also a little bit too niche. But um, in any case, you're restricted with how long you can wear it. And ultimately, because it disconnects you from reality, because <laughs> that's the whole point, um, there's a, a much less use, use case for it. So you can't just use it when you drive. Well, definitely don't use it when you're driving anyway
1: i was going to say that that um that you mentioned driving i I think one of the funny aspects of virtual reality kind of augmented reality that um that we need to think about is this idea of yeah like a heads-up display um there are cars that will project things off the dash onto the back of the windshield Mm. in front of the driver and that's a case where You know, augmented reality isn't blocking out the world, but it's adding layers on top of it. And the idea that you can have a heads-up display that will tell you important things about what you're seeing in front of you or even enhance on a dark road, show you where the road curves and what cars are coming and all of that, like that is, that's really powerful. And that's just an overlay on top of your existing senses to enhance them. And that's an exciting possibility.
0: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and that's exactly what I want to talk about next. And that's our last topic, by the way. And, and that's got to do with, yeah, well, yeah, Hey, we're getting close to the end. Um, but yeah, because, because you are overlaying additional information and heads up displays, Um, you can add all sorts of context and how you do that. I mean, in in a vehicle, and I was thinking about this, it's really an operating position because if you're sitting in a car, it could be a train or a bus. You could be an operator of a crane, like an overhead crane or something. I mean, all of that information, you can add more and more context to help people make decisions. And it's something that they started having in fighter pilots uh, 30 years ago, the heads-up displays in their helmets and so on. Uh, Showing position and tilt and angle and and all that stuff, not a pilot anyhow, that kind of thing. And I'm really terrible at flight simulators, but that sort of thing's been around for a while. And now it's just getting wider adoption. And that's going to be a far more useful use case uh, than something like virtual reality, because you're still connected to reality. So it's a lot less dangerous, and it's going to be a lot more widely applicable. But then if you're not actually in an operating position, uh, then having something, as you were saying before, about a um, backlight or some kind of an attachment that sits in front of your eyes, you know, like on glasses. And, you know, let's just talk quickly about Google Glass because that was intended to be, um, you know, like here is the future. And I remember um, at the time an article from um, Joshua Topolsky um, and and the tagline I still remember was, I've seen the future and it is glass. And hmm. it's like, you know, the thing that's interesting about Google Glass is that the technology was way ahead of its time, and the funny thing is that what came out of it was not the tech. It was how people reacted to the tech that was interesting.
1: Yeah, right. The, the idea that like it had a little thing that would light up that would say that it was recording yeah. your, your social interaction, and there was this feeling like that was creepy and that people didn't want to – it broke a lot of social – um contracts yes. by doing that yes. i think and also it you were visibly wearing a an augmented device which meant that you were in a way that you know maybe a pair of headphones doesn't do it it was saying here i am with this with this uh, thing that doesn't look like a pair of glasses, you couldn't really go incognito. They tried to do that later where they added kind of fashion frames, but it, it was hard to to have you blend in and and that all kind of broke down. Also, Google over- oversold it, right? That was part of the problem. Is sure. It was an extremely low resolution display um, that made it, you know, very limited with what it could do.
0: A- absolutely. Did you ever get to try one at all?
1: I tried one for a very, very short amount of time and I found the experience kind of underwhelming. But also my vision isn't great and that was part of the problem too is that I think it was invented by people who've got really good vision and there was this whole idea of like, do I have to wear glasses on top of my Google Glass and yeah. again, later they were like, we can do prescription Google Glass. But it uh, it was a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a challenge and it will be a challenge, this idea of if you could... Um, You know, not everybody wears glasses. And this basically for the physics reasons I mentioned earlier and the biology reasons I mentioned earlier, you kind of need to hang something in front of your face. Glasses are a logical way to do it, even though they're maybe a little bit too close. You could miniaturize that and all that. So I think there are a lot of challenges there. But I do, as I mentioned earlier, I am kind of a believer in the augmented reality aspect of it where you're not blotting out the world, but you are getting your world annotated in a subtle way that only you see.
0: Absolutely. And, and I think that there's all sorts of um, interesting use cases. And just on that, on that thought, when you bring up not everyone wears glasses, you know, exactly. And the interesting thing is that I know people that, that would wear glasses, but they don't like to wear glasses. They really hate wearing glasses and they will wear contact lenses over glasses any day of the week. In fact, I, a lot of people I know that I work with um, and other podcasters at the same position. So, uh, you know, I I totally understand that and that's going to be, well, if you want to use augmented reality, you're going to have to, unless they come out with it on contact lenses, which is even more way off in the distance in, <laughs> in terms of technology. But you know, you're know, you going to have to put these glasses on if you want to take advantage of it. But if that's okay, and of course it occurs to me that a lot of the the, uh, the geeks that want to develop this technology, that are developing this technology – probably wear glasses so they don't see that as an issue but anyway (laughs) um interesting but never mind Uh, so the point is that you can have all sorts of stuff like uh, how fast you're traveling what the current temperature is um you know if you're out shopping say in a bricks and mortar store you could do object recognition because right now you can take photos of things on your phone and and have have it looked up in an image search and tell you what it is well You know, it's it's the next step to say, well, now I know that this this is this amount of money. This is worth five dollars and on Amazon, or it's worth ten dollars at the the next shop down the street. You know, you can have all that sort of information. You could have information. What I don't know what that landmark is. You know, off in the distance, hundreds of yards away. Have a look at it, and it'll tell you what it is. You know, it's oh, that's the Coit Tower. Okay, fair enough. Um, whatever it might be, and all of that is uh, is it could be very very useful information and. Uh, and I think that this that tech is far more useful and broader appealing than virtual reality is.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think it is um there's huge potential there. I think the the voice whispering in my ear is maybe a better interface for a lot of things, mm. but not for all things. Um having the ability to have yes, a recognition of who who is this person? What's their name? I remember everybody you see and I can tell you. Who they are when you see them again, which I'm really bad at. I, I you know, like you said, yeah. um, annotating. Where am I showing? Um, I, I know that Google did a demo not too long ago of uh, with uh, Google Maps being able to show you an augmented reality walking directions thing oh, on yeah. their phones, so that you can actually draw an arrow saying like across this street here and all of that. I think that's great. Um, and it's just you know we talked about glanceability earlier, and I think that that augmented reality um done right you know that's what it is because it's not it's not replacing your world it's overlaying it with information and if we go back even f- further to me talking about how our brains process information differently in that ted chang story like this is this is a part of that which is we end up as kind of augmented humans who have these helpers to give us more information and let us process the world better and i think i think that there's potentially a lot of power there
0: absolutely Uh, And I think that uh, one of the current use cases, for example, for augmented reality uh, is just like holding up your phone or your iPad in front of, let's say, a table or a room and you know then it can overlay things over the top of that and i think that there are a limited set of use cases where that's where that's useful i think it's obviously it makes for a really good demo and you've got this virtual you know battle going on in a game on the table or the, the virtual lego demo i think that they did uh, at an event for apple a few uh, not that long ago and um but because you're holding it, it gets very tiring. It can be a bit awkward. And I think that the one use case I could think of was holding up an iPad in a room uh, for different color swatches if you think about painting a room. And I think that's that's actually a really good use case. It's certainly better than a cardboard color swatch, you, you know, the, the old-fashioned way of doing it because it 'cause it'll give you a much better idea of what the room might look like. But... Um, but, in the end, I think for augmented reality to really take off it needs to be something that is that you just put on put on a set of glasses or add it to your existing glasses and it can give you all that information very discreetly and I think ultimately though i guess unlike unlike a tap on the wrist from the watch which we which we love because we can choose to ignore that easily um if something comes up as a visual indication, there has to be a lot of care taken with whoever designs this the the final AR technology that it doesn't obscure or distract or is in your field of vision because that could be really dangerous and right yeah it's um i don't think it's straightforward but if you get it right it could be uh it could be huge i think
1: right well when i mentioned the car example earlier that's a good example of how that information does need to be placed very carefully because the last thing you want to do is obscure the vision of somebody who's driving a car But at the same time, if you could enhance the vision of somebody driving a car, that would be very powerful and increase safety. And so that is, once again, it's all about details.
0: Absolutely right, absolutely. So um, the only other thing I was thinking about is how far off is this? And um, I think that apart from obviously the social contract stuff, which you mentioned, uh, and I think privacy considerations in that respect is really important. So with your recording, uh, you don't. You. I think it probably would be better to have glasses or you know <laughs> augmented reality where you, you. It's not possible to record. Like data comes in, they process it, overlay information on the top of it, but it's never recorded. It's the sort of thing that I would. I would expect that Apple would simply say, "Look, we think it's creepy. We don't. We think it's an invasion of privacy. It doesn't matter if there's a red light blinking. We don't want it at all. I think that that would go a long way to avoiding a Google Glass or Glass Hole or whatever they call people. Um, yeah, it would avoid a lot of that. Uh, but ultimately, the only things technologically stopping it is just miniaturization. And looking at what the Apple Watch has and how far it's come in four or five years, uh, it may only be another year or two before we have something that's a first product out on the market from something someone like Apple, maybe.
1: Could be. I think, I think that it may come very soon. Well, here's hoping.
0: Um, I, w- I would get one because I couldn't help myself because I'm a geek, but that'd be awesome. Anyway, all right. So... Ultimately, just to, to sort of put a bow on this, you can use a single device, I think, for a multiple multiple purposes, but it's never going to be the optimal interface for every use case. And that's not possible. There's no such thing as one device for everything. And it's funny, I, I hear some, some of my friends complain about there are now so many different products in Apple's lineup that you, it's hard to pick. And across whether that's desktops, laptops, um, iPhones of different sizes, Apple Watches, um, the home pod, and it's just there's so much variety. It's like what well, if I had to spend money on which one, which one should I get, is a is a question I know that you get asked regularly. And that's a really hard question to answer. And I guess the whole point of having this, this going through all of the different optimal interfaces for different things and our different sensors is that if you can optimize, you know, for each use case, you say I want the best, most relaxing device for this task, let's say, then hopefully some of the things that we've talked about can help sort of focus you on uh, what, what's, what's the optimal interface for this job. And therefore it's okay for me to go and spend a bit extra and get the best possible display, the best possible iPhone, or the best possible watch because that's going to satisfy my the use case that I want. It's going to be the best interface for glanceable information. I want it to be discreet. You know, that's the way to go. And a long time ago, I remember a tradie once said to me, right tool for the job, yeah, meaning that you don't use a flathead screwdriver and a Phillips head screw. I mean, I mean, you could, but you could probably get away with it, but eventually you're going to gouge the screw head and it's all over and then you'll be drilling it out. Right. But you know what I mean? So I don't know. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think, I think we are um, – today it, we're kind of in a transitional phase, but I do think we are headed for a world where – um, we We are departing from the world where you have a device, right like we have departed from the world of I have a computer that 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 era is is over now we have lots of devices, but it feels to me very much like we are entering an era with a constellation of devices around us, depending on our needs right and it and that does allow you to have the right tool for the job and um that 's challenged for some people because they are thinking from a mindset of you know every product should be for me. And that's where you get people, I think, who say, oh, AirPods are stupid, or uh, iPads are stupid, or uh, Apple Watches are stupid. And the truth is, um, they're not all going to be for you. They, they, the, In the constellation of devices world, it is going to be the right tool for the job. And if you don't have a job, you don't need the tool. And uh, But what we are going to have is a bunch of small, interconnected devices, ideally working together to make... You know to do the parts of the job that are most appropriate, and you know Apple definitely is going in this direction, but I think lots of other companies are too. But even just with my Apple devices, I have a giant screen that I can sit at and work. I've got a, an iPad which I can use around the house. I've got my iPhone which I carry in my pocket. But I've also got I've got the smaller devices. I've got the AirPods in my ears and the Apple Watch on my wrist. And in the future, you know, the, are they going to do augmented reality glasses? And the idea there is that eventually you've got little tech. It's not all one. Big primary interface. It's scattered. And the Apple Watch is going to be way better at parts of the job if you want those parts, if that's the right tool for the job. And I'm excited because smaller devices are going to be, I think, by their very definition, more appropriate for very specific circumstances because they don't get in your way. Because they're they're small and they ride along with you and they're part of a larger story and I think that is exciting but I do think that's where we're going is is the right tools for the job instead of what we used to have which is buy a computer and use the computer and if that interface didn't work for you it's too bad it's all we have yeah it's it's interesting from
0: the point of view um, I completely agree I, I think that when we look at uh, I used to get frustrated because. Um, you know, there were always too many compromises for one device fits all, and and I've tried different things like just having the watch as the only thing that I had and like on me at the time. And, well, and a pair of AirPods to be honest, so I could make phone calls. But you know, I tried that. It it didn't work out in the long term because it wasn't the optimal interface for a whole bunch of things. I couldn't search. Uh, I couldn't do web searches. I, I couldn't search for anything on it. And um, that was a big. That turned out to be a bigger problem than I realized at the time. But you have to try it. In the end, now we've got. An amazing choice. I actually look at it as a good thing because you can actually pick if you want the best, most glanceable information, and you want something that's going to discreetly notify you when you've got notifi- when you have notifications, then get an Apple Watch. It's you know, irrespective of the health health component. You know, I think it's great to have that option. So I see that as this diversifies, you can pick the best uh, device for the job that you want, and that's that's a really good thing. But the thing is that at the moment we assess that's where we are today. And the next inflection points are going to be when speech recognition really becomes um, fast, reliable, and consistent. And I'm sure that people have been saying that for decades, but I actually think that's a lot closer than, uh, than it has been in the past. So, And that will remove a lot of the advantages of the keyboard, in which case then some suddenly that equation will change. And we can go and reassess because we can do mass um, text entry, well, text entry through speech through a watch now it, when that becomes reality, uh, potentially. So all of that will change again, and we'll reassess and we'll refine, and then there'll be a new optimal interface. So this is a never-ending thing as the technology evolves, and I think that's fantastic. I agree. All righty. Well, then. If you want to talk more about this, you can reach me on the Fediverse at chigi at engineered.space or you can follow engineered underscore net on Twitter to see show specific announcements. And we've recently started a YouTube channel if you're interested in that sort of thing. If you're enjoying Pragmatic and you want to support the show, you can via Patreon at patreon.com slash johnchigi or one word with a special thank you to all of our patrons. A special thank you to our silver producers, Carsten Hansen and John Whitlow, and an extra special thank you to our gold producer known only as R. Patron rewards include a named thank you on the website, a named thank you at the end of episodes, access to raw detailed show notes as well as ad-free, high-quality releases of every episode with patron audio now available via individual Breaker audio feeds. So if you'd like to contribute something, anything at all, there's lots of great rewards and beyond that, it's all really, really appreciated. Beyond that, there's lots of other ways to help, like leaving a rating or review on iTunes, favoriting this episode in your podcast player app of choice, or sharing the episode or your show, or the show with your friends or via social. All those things will help others to discover the show and can make a huge difference. I'd personally like to thank Backblaze for sponsoring the Engineered Network. Remember to specifically visit this URL, Backblaze or OneWord.com/pragmatic, to check it out and give it a try. Don't take a chance with your data. Start protecting yourself now. And don't wait a few months like I did. Start today. There's now a regular Q&A session and this live stream for the show on the network. If you can submit questions for the Q&A with the hashtag EngNetQA on Twitter or the Fediverse or live in the IRC chat room on freenode.net on the channel HashEngNet. I hope you can join us live. Thanks to everyone who did join us live today. Really appreciate it. Pragmatic's part of the Engineered Network, and you can find it at engineered.network with a full upcoming live show schedule now included. If you'd like to get in touch with Jason, (laughs) what's the best way to get in touch with you, mate?
1: Uh, I don't know. You can tweet at me at jasnell on Twitter. You can find all my stuff that I do at sixcolors.com, including all the podcasts at theincomparable.com and relay.fm.
0: Fantastic awesome well thank you very much everybody that tuned in live thank you also to the patrons and a big thank you to everybody else who uh, who listens to the show um non-live and uh thanks for coming back on the show again jason it was a blast it was a pleasure
1: as always thanks for having me
0: thank you